0: The series is supported in part by the Hamera Foundation. In the description for each episode, you will find information about the theme for that week's session, including an image of a related artwork chosen from the Rubin Museum's permanent collection. And now, please enjoy your practice. If you have spent a little time in the Rubin Museum's galleries, or you have knowledge through experience or other resources about Himalayan art, this image behind me here will probably be familiar to you. This is kind of one of the most iconic and commonly known images in the landscape of Tibetan Buddhist art, and it's called the Wheel of Life, also known as the Wheel of Existence, or the Wheel of Samsara. And this depicts a concept that is very central to Tibetan Buddhism, which is this idea of birth and rebirth and that through karma, we are reborn into different realms of existence through the path of our karma. And there's a lot to digest here. In fact, we could talk for hours about this artwork. I'm going to give you just the basics, and then I highly recommend, if you have the time, that you join Jeremy right outside the theater after our program today. He'll take you up to the galleries for a kind of a closer look. There's a lot of detail here. It's really quite amazing. And uh, a little more discussion about what we're looking at here. But I'll just point out kind of the, the structure of, of what's going on here. And um, the innermost circle pictures the three, what are considered the three poisons. And these are depicted by a snake, a rooster, and a hog or a pig. Fear, ignorance, and desire is what they represent. And these are the, the, considered to be the three things that really take us away from our path towards enlightenment. Then there's a half-black and half-white circle right around that, and that depicts the sort of descent and ascent that is possible within these realms. Human figures that are uh, doing dishonorable things or meritorious things that kind of propel them around this circle. And then outside of that, the kind of the largest chunk there is the depiction of the the six realms of existence. So we have the gods and the demigods. Interesting to note, gods are not considered enlightened, fully enlightened beings here. In fact, it's the hardest fall you can take when you're a god. You just have the, you know, and and you... uh, You perhaps may uh, think a lot of yourself as a god. You have a far fall to go if that happens. Um, The human realm, which is considered where the most possibility lies in terms of enlightenment. The hungry ghosts, the animal realm, and the hell realm at the bottom. But I think what's really interesting to remember is that you'll always see in each and every realm the depiction of a Buddha, and that represents the ability for one to gain enlightenment no matter what realm they're currently living in. And then outside of that, the thin ring around the edge, this is the 12 links of dependent origination, and that explains how one moves through these realms. And then finally, this um, pretty terrifying creature holding everything in his grasp here is the Lord of Death, Yama. So, it's it's heavy, it's dark, and it's meant to be because what I really want to tell you about this today, during this month that we're speaking about uh, ritual, is that this object can play an important part in the ritual of a practitioner who is entering a shrine room. In fact, uh, in most shrine rooms, this object here is... Painted in this sort of vestibule, the entryway before one goes into the shrine room, and it's it's meant to be a kind of ritual of waking up, of kind of shocking the viewer into remembering what's at stake here, and really calling them into this action of being present and entering this devotional space with intention and. As we've been talking about ritual this month, that's been something that's really come up, that ritual, you know, whether religious or secular, can be almost any kind of action as long as it's done with presence and intention. So delighted to have Tracy Cochran back with us. She's going to talk to us a little bit more about um, ritual and this object Tracy is a writer and the editorial director of the quarterly magazine, Parabola, which can be found online at parabola.org and also upstairs in the shop. And she has been a student of meditation and other spiritual practices for many years and a teacher as well. in in addition to the Rubin, she currently teaches at New York Insight and every Sunday at Hudson River Sangha in Tarrytown. Her writings and teaching schedule can be found online via Parabola on Facebook, Twitter, and tracycochran.org. Please give her a warm welcome back, Tracy Cochran. Well, this is a heavy
1: image indeed. And I found myself, when I walked in here today, I saw it projected so large. I wish I'd been given a little Buddha, or some bells or something to talk about, not something quite so big and daunting. Because uh, one thing I do know about rituals is that they're always connected to a bigger story, and you're looking at the bigger story. And. Woe to anyone who came in here today for just a little bit of relaxation, <laughs> a little bit of secular mindfulness, because now the cat is out of the bag. It's it's easy to feel lost in the face of this. Like, I wonder if anyone here would like to venture a guess about which way they're headed on any given day. Would anyone like to commit? It, it, it's, we're not used to thinking of the cosmology. And when I looked at this image, because I was raised in the West, I kept thinking of this sentence, which I bet you've heard too. In the middle of the journey of our life, I found myself in a dark wood where the straightway was lost. And the words are by Dante. And the narrator was describing one night in 1300. But I can relate. Because one time, I was lost in the woods. I don't know if you've ever had the experience, but it's pretty incredible. And I was at Yosemite National Park and night was falling. And I was supposed to be babysitting my two young nephews. And we went deeper and deeper and deeper into these shadowy, tall, trees. And every step of the way, my nephews were chanting lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. I'm not kidding. Lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. And they thought this was just a riot. And I felt that at any moment, an actual lion, mountain lion, or a bear could come lunging out of the trees at me. And I know when Dante wrote. His narrator, Dante, was 35, which was middle-aged in medieval terms. And when this happened to me, I was in my early 30s, I think not middle-aged, but I felt it that night. I felt the whole weight of my life and every single misguided, stupid thing, in my opinion, stupid thing that I'd ever done that had brought me to this terrible reckoning to be lost in the woods. How could I have done this? Not just to myself, but to these innocent little kids. So I went on. What else can you do? You keep going. And eventually, I found my way back. I got to a shuttle bus, which is the way it worked at Yosemite, and I went back to where my family was staying. And my brother-in-law, stormed past me in a fury and grabbed his children. And you could hardly blame him. But standing right behind him was my mother, who was looking at me with a mixture of compassion and amusement. And she said something I'll never forget. She said, honey, you look like you could use a drink. (laughs) And, and I could. So I remember sitting with her on the terrace of this kind of cocktail bar in the towering forest at Yosemite. And she just kept looking at me with love and amusement. And all these decades later, I remember that her presence, not words like words from a book of wisdom, but a presence that didn't exclude anything. She knew I had a terrible sense of direction. It had been a problem for her since I was born. She would always try to put like a bracelet on my right wrist to teach me right from left. But she was loving and accepting the whole catastrophe, as some people have called it, the whole of me. So when I was thinking about this great wheel, and thinking Dante was given a guide that was sent from heaven by his beloved Beatrice. And this great guide, Virgil, sent him, took him, down into the depths, into hell, and then up the mountain to heaven. He had to experience the whole of reality before he could ascend and know freedom. And I realized that this little bit of presence that we gain when we sit is no small thing. Just sitting here, you come in here today, maybe you don't expect much. You just want a respite, a little bit of calm. But somehow when you let yourself relax, let go, bring your attention home, sometimes you can feel the loving presence. I felt that night when I was sitting with my mother. You have a feeling of accompaniment. Accompaniment that lights your way. And Henry David Thoreau, a great American writer, said, not until we're lost do we begin to find ourselves. Not until we've lost the world And you know what that means. And you can lose the world in any number of ways. You can have money problems. You can have health problems. You can have problems with your children or your work. Something that separates you from the world in your view. Something that cuts you off from the great scale of possibility, from the fullness of your humanity. But it's exactly there, when you've lost the world, when you've lost your sense of connection to wholeness, that the path begins. Because as the road continues, that's when you begin to know who you are and where you are and the infinite extent of your relations. When you feel lost, you take the next breath and you notice what's around you. You certainly do when you're lost in the woods. And you have a feeling for what matters. And it's not your stories about who you think you are. Those tend to disappear. All your fictions about how your life will go. And you begin to have a feeling for the scale of being here that you're here on an earth, surrounded by mystery. What can help you? Love, kindness, a willingness to sit down and be still and see what comes, and meet it without judgment, a willingness to let go. And today is the Jewish Day of Atonement. Some of you might know that. And I remember many years ago in Brooklyn coming upon a group of Orthodox Jews throwing bread in the water. And I had never seen this before. And, I, you know, I'm not actually Jewish. So I found out from Ancestry.com I'm 1% Jewish, so I'm (laughs) celebrating today. And I knew what it meant in my body, in my heart. It was a gesture of relinquishing and offering and letting go. which is what we do when we sit, too. And I looked up the word atonement, and it means at-one-ment. at one meant. At it really does. I'm not making this up. It's extraordinary. To be at one. We allow ourselves to be seen as we are. We offer ourselves to be seen. We let go of our fear and our sense of separation. And we rejoin a greater wholeness, a greater world. So let's sit. And we notice the feet and the back, and the way our head rests on our neck. And we let ourselves be here, just as we are. Accepting everything that happens to be present today, you might feel lost, or separate, or in pain are at peace, accepting everything that's here without judging and without running away. We let ourselves be. We take our place in life, surrounded by mystery. And we let the attention come back to the breath without seeking to change it in any way. We just notice in-breath and out-breath and the sensation of being in a body. And we notice sensations, sounds, thoughts, and we let everything be with no judgment. And we come home to the breath and the body and the present moment. Noticing that the movement of coming home isn't separate from a movement of letting go. We let go of thinking and come home to the present. And notice that there's light inside you, an energy of life, a vibration. When you find yourself lost in thought or feeling, gently come home to the body and the breath and this moment, noticing how it feels to be seen without judgment. As we begin to relax, we soften. This separation between inside and outside begins to soften and become porous. begin to remember that we're alive and supported by life, connected to it. Noticing how it feels to let go of thinking and come home to the body and the moment. Notice that when we come home to the body, it's not shutting down, but joining something greater, a greater life, the present. noticing how it feels to come home, to be welcomed into a shared world. Noticing how it feels to be completely accepted when you stray and when you come home. Seen by a light of attention that doesn't judge. That's loving. Responsive. There's a light of attention inside us that can be with what is and let go. Noticing that there is a presence that we can come home to that can guide us.